Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, chaplain, professor, writer, and speaker, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we're going to have a conversation about human sinfulness. Perhaps you've thought about this and pondered how sinful are humans, how does sin affect the human condition, and so we're going to have a discussion about that today. But Aaron, just to get our listeners up to speed, why are you thinking about this podcast and why this podcast in the first place? Yeah. Well, we we spend quite a bit of time talking about the problems of our world, problems in educational systems, problems in our churches, problems in culture. In other words, we're talking about sin. We talk about sin a lot and what the solution is to sin. We, we often spend time talking about practical strategies to bring about change in culture. But I thought maybe it would be helpful to step back and do a bit of a series. I'm hoping to do a, uh, a series of podcasts talking about the sinfulness of humanity and the solutions that God offers to that. So we're constantly exposed to sin. So it seems to me to make sense that we'd want to think through what human sinfulness really looks like and how our sinfulness then affects even our ability to seek after God, for example. It, our, our understanding of who we are, this is part of our broader anthropology, so the mm-hmm. doctrine of man. Our, our understanding of our sinfulness, we call it hamartiology in systematic theology, affects our view of self. It affects our view of how God does and has worked in us. So it's an important topic for us to, to discuss. So these, are be a, these will be more theologically oriented podcasts. But as I always enjoy, I want to make some practical application, make some practical connections to everyday life. So that's that's my intention in a nutshell. Okay, excellent. Well, maybe it's a good place to start out with some uh, biblical definitions of sin, the word origins or words that uh, would come up in this discussion of sin. Sure. Yeah. So we, we have some want to provide some clarity in terms of terms and definitions. So we obviously have. 66 books of the Bible, which is our authority for all matters of faith and practice, our hamartiology, which is the word for our doctrine of sin, must flow from the pages of the Bible. And the Bible was written primarily in two two languages. We have Hebrew as the primary language of the 39 books of our Old Testament, what we call our Old Testament. And then we have Koine Greek as the primary language of our New Testament. And so when you're translating from Hebrew to English, it's important if we're going to get detailed in our understanding of sin to go back and understand what Hebrew words are used to define and describe sin, what Greek words are used. I'll just cover eight. So starting with the Old Testament, we have a Hebrew word, shagah, and this word appears in passages like Ezekiel 34, 6, and it means to stagger or go, a, go astray. So as we're trying to shape in our minds a view, a concept of human sinfulness, think of someone staggering aimlessly or think of someone going astray, going away from where they, they should be. There's another word, shakta, 
And this means to miss the mark. Mm -hmm. This is the word used in uh, Exodus 20, 20. And I, most people who are students of scripture will know that there's, there is an aspect of sin, which means to miss the mark. Now the mark of course is the absolute holiness and laws of God. So that's an aspect of sin. There's the word raw, which means evil or wicked or ruin. It appears in passages like Genesis 38, seven. And then there's ta'a, meaning going astray, similar to uh, shagah, and, and this appears in passages like Numbers 15, 22. So if you're just reading, let's say the Hebrew Bible, you would have a, a sufficient understanding of sin just by being exposed to those four words. It, it carries with it an aspect of staggering, going astray, missing missing the mark, not measuring up, in other words, to God's ideals, evilness, wickedness, ruin. This takes it beyond, well, I just, I, I didn't just passively miss the mark. It's not like, oh, shucks, I didn't do what God asked me to do. Sin is, is evil. It is deliberate, and it is heinous in the eyes of God, and and that factors into our doctrine of human responsibility. We are responsible for our own sin. We need to take. We need to own up to it. In the New Testament, we have a word hamartano, and this word means to miss the mark. It's found in Romans chapter five, verse twelve, very similar to chata in in Hebrew. Kakos means disease or moral filth or like dung. Mark 7.21, we have the word poneros, which means moral evil. That's found in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. And the final word, which we'll discuss, is animos. So namos, law, animos, lawlessness, anti-law, in other words. That's found in 1 John 3.4 and, and other passages. So... In the New Testament, if you just read the New Testament, you come away with this notion, okay, sin, what is that? It's it's also missing a mark. It's it's moral filth. It's disgusting to God. It's morally uh, evil. In other words, it's a breach of God's ethical standards, and it's rebellious. It's lawlessness against God. So if we think of sin, we think of it as in part not measuring up to God's standards. We think of it in part as deliberately rebelling against God's standards. So we could say there, some people have used the expression, um, sins of omission, sins of commission. So we have sins that we commit because we just didn't measure up to God's standards, but we may not even be fully aware of it. Other times we deliberately and heinously rebel against the lawgiver there's a moral aspect to it. There's there's a, a desire to pursue that which is evil and wicked in the eyes of God. And ultimately it's a violation of God's laws. So that that kind of those words help us to get started. When we collect those all up, and if we were to come up with a theological biblical definition, we could say something like, you know, sin is personal autonomy. It's personal self-law, and it is willful rebellion against God's commands. It's We could also say that it's a moral breach of God's perfect holiness. Hmm. And it's a rejection of his rule, it's disobedience to his laws. So 
this is the nature of sin. And if we were to ask, where did sin originate? Well, we know that if we read the Genesis 3 account, that the serpent, who who is Satan, uh, in a sense is the original sinner in that he has already rebelled against God by the time he's having the famous conversation with Eve in the garden. But it's in terms of the physical creation, of course, he's ultimately a spirit being. In terms of the physical creation, sin, sin's entrance into the world happens in Genesis 3, where the Imago Dei, Adam and Eve, question, downplay the consequences of, and then flat out reject God's law, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and plunge all of their descendants into not only active sin, but also the reception of a sin nature through their forebear, Adam. So that's how sin entered into the world. That's the biblical description of it, and by faith we accept that as authoritative for our lives. Hmm. So I think one of the natural questions that comes to mind when we think about, okay, sin entered the world there, um, how is sin transmitted? Is it a hereditary disease? It is. Is it originally um, in one person and maybe it just springs up in each person, each generation, or how does it transmit? Mm-hmm. This is really important to our theology of salvation, by the way, and we're not going to get into all that today, but we will eventually. So our theology of salvation in many ways hinges upon our understanding of how and where sin originates. So originally, where did it originate? Well, originally it originated in the physical order in the Imago Dei, in Adam and in Eve. So then we have, if you look at the the Genesis 3 account, it's Eve having the conversation with the serpent. The Bible says, but Adam who was with her took some and, and ate it. God, they didn't hide, God comes and confronts them. And then you fast forward to Romans and it's talking about the the sin of Adam and then the second Adam who is Christ. And what we discover in the word of God is that sin is actually transmitted from Adam to his children, from those children to their children, from those children to their children. So because all of us originate in Adam, I mean, even Eve originates in Adam because she is taken from his body. When, when every human being is conceived, they inherit and receive Adam's sin nature. Now, it, it, man, it ultimately takes time for it to manifest itself in willful rebellion against God and missing the mark and moral evil. But it is transmitted. It doesn't just show up when you're 13. It doesn't just show up when you're 25. It, the sin nature is there from conception. So even after creation, it's important for us to affirm, uh, more specifically after the fall of, of man into sin in Genesis 3, it's important to make, we're st- we are still made in the image and likeness of God. So it wasn't like Adam and Eve were made in the image and likeness of God and the rest of us are made just in the image of man. We are still made in the image and likeness of God, which in part means we are moral beings. We're, we're stewards, we have dominion over creation, but we're also moral beings. And there are rules that govern our behavior that God has given to the Imago Dei. There's a whole bunch of them. There's, there's rules in terms of what we're allowed to say or not say. We're not allowed to blaspheme. Read the, read the, uh, the Ten Commandments. 
God is concerned about our thought life. If a man looks at a woman lustfully, it's as if he's had adultery with her. There are rules in terms of our sexuality, fornication, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality. They're sinful in the eyes of God. There's even rules in the word of God in terms of territory and, and physical possessions. You can't just go steal someone's stuff. The 10th commandment, you're not to cover another person's possessions. Even what we eat, you might think, well, those, those are Old Testament laws. Well, actually, there's still dietary laws that are in place today. For example, cannibalism is forbidden. Yeah. Like, well, of course it's forbidden. Well, it's not forbidden in the animal world. Many different species of animals eat each other. Mm-hmm. There's some monkeys that will eat their own offspring if they think it will benefit the, the clan or the tribe, whatever you would call it, the gang that they're in. Mm-hmm. And no one sends the police in to arrest the, the, the mother monkeys or the male monkeys for eating their own offspring. It's kind of gross to think about but we don't put a label on it. That's immoral, that's wrong, that's sinful. Mm -hmm. But we do say to human beings, you don't eat other people. Mm -hmm. Now, so we're made in the image and likeness of God. There's rules, we're moral beings. There's rules that govern our behavior and we break those rules regularly in thought, in word, and in deed. So it's really important for people to remember in in a culture that is hyper individualistic. We almost have this idea Everyone's born a blank slate, which from my understanding is what Islam teaches. Mm. You're, you're not born a sinner. You're born a tabla rasa. You're born a blank slate. Christianity does not teach that in its biblical form. Christianity teaches, biblical Christianity teaches, that we descend from Adam and we therefore inherit his guilt and we inherit his nature. So we, you are not... You are an individual, but you're not a radical individual. You're not disconnected from the first man. You're not disconnected from the human race. You inherit Adam's guilt as his offspring, and you inherit his nature. And this inheritance intrinsically separates us from God and always, without exception, 100% of the time, manifests itself in thoughts, words, and deeds when you're old enough to act out your sin nature. And that, ha- that happens pretty early. Mm-hmm. And it pollutes every aspect of our humanity with sin. Every aspect. It pollutes our thought life. It pollutes our emotions. It pollutes, it pollutes our outlook on who others are in relationship to self. We're just innately selfish, for example. Mm-hmm. Even little, little children, there's, there's a selfishness that's manifested in them from almost day one. So it pollutes everything. And of course, even our bodies are polluted in that we're subject to disease and we're subject to death because of sin. The Bible uses some strong language in this regard. For instance, if you study Romans 3, it talks about us being under sin. We're under sin. It's like there's this weight, there's this burden that's been placed upon us. And Romans 3, 10, 11, 12, this is a really critical passage, tells us we don't even seek after God. So by, na- by nature, you might think you're seeking after God because you're having religious thoughts or you're, mm-hmm. you're engaged in the uh, religious inquiry. So you're, you're researching Christianity or you're sitting in church and you're listening to Christian sermons or you're observing Christian things. But because of your sin, the Bible tells us there are no seekers except for God. Mm-hmm. God is the only true seeker. 
So we do not seek after God. No one understands, no one seeks after God. The Bible's explicit on that. You don't need a PhD in biblical exegesis to, to read that in the word of God. We are enslaved to sin. We're not just, it's not just something like a big heavy backpack that we carry around that we can put on and put off. We're literally enslaved to it. The psalmist talks about that in Psalm 51, Jeremiah 17, Matthew 15, numerous passages, Ephesians 2. We are enslaved in bondage to sin. And this is because we have a head, Adam, whose sin we have inherited. It literally is passed on father to son, father to son, father to son. There's some dispute between federal headship and seminal headship, whether he's just figuratively passing on sin or he's seminally and biologically passing on sin. I would say it's both. Because our physicality is tied to Adam, mm -hmm. we, we, we literally are born with the propensity in our flesh, in our physicality, in our humanity to sin. And he's also our representative of which Christ becomes the second Adam. So when we when we think of this, some have suggested, well, then why do we call people to believe? Well, just be, we're, we are sinners mm -hmm. and we that sin affects us to the core of our being, but we're still commanded as redeemed sinners to call people to believe in repentance in Christ. It's still biblical to pray that God's Holy Spirit would enable people to believe because we know that apart from an inter internal work of God, we're incapable of doing that. The doctrines of God's work behind the scenes serve to strengthen our worship. So when, the, when we read passages in the Bible that help us to understand that God sought us out, that God stepped our way, that we didn't step God's way, it's not meant to make you arrogant. Mm -hmm. It's not meant to make you say, well, so let's suppose I'm a Christian and uh, uh, my brother isn't. Now, my brothers actually are, but let's suppose for a moment there, I don't go up to him and say, I'm a Christian, you're not, nah, 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 nah. It's not that arrogance, or I'm better than you, or I was in the right place at the right time. People could be born from the exact same parents, raised the same way. One believe, one, one doesn't. We're calling everyone to believe. But behind the scenes, we realize, man, God sought me out. And mm -hmm. that is cause for growth in humility, not gross and hubris. Mm -hmm. it's, it's growth in humility. It's growth in worship. It's like, wow, I did not deserve this. So we, we call, the, the, the gospel calls all human beings to uh, repent of their sins and trespasses. But behind the scenes, what we discover as we deeply study the word of God is that we need God to do a work which we do not have the ability to perform. And that is, we don't have the ability to seek after him. There's one ultimate seeker who is God. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful that even though we were dead, not injured, mm -hmm. read Ephesians 2, not injured, not a little off base, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, that we're thankful that God being rich in mercy sought us out and enabled us to believe and to repent of our sins. And then in the Christian life, also works in our lives, enabling us day by day to acknowledge our sinfulness and to keep short accounts with our Redeemer. Mm -hmm. The process of sanctification is what I'm referring to. Right. There. Yeah, exactly. Now, when I think about sin, especially as I've grown as a Christian, I, I realize we, it, somebody used the expression once, you don't know the waters you're swimming in. Um, you don't even realize the depth of sin until 
God shows it to you and he graciously reveals it more and more. Right. Um, Because if we were loaded up with it at the beginning, I think we would just shrivel up and die. Yeah. Realizing how evil it is. But that is one of the the aspects of God's grace and not revealing it all at once. Mm -hmm. But I think there's still a a belief that people want to have that we're not totally sinful. Uh um, Even though we realize every day how much more sinful we are. Why do you think that is? Yeah, there there is a uh, an attempt by many individuals to somehow, even Christian individuals, to somehow retain some credit. They would never use that word, but by denying the radical depravity, the total depravity that that characterizes the human race apart from Christ, they they want to retain some aspect of merit or credit. Now, in formal theological language, we would deny that human beings are utterly depraved. We would reserve that, for example, for Satan. Mm -hmm. So we can still, as prior to redemption, we can engage, for example, in moral conduct. You can teach a person to uh, perform certain uh, moral precepts or to obey certain moral precepts to be generous, to be kind in their words, to refrain from murdering other people, for example. So we can train a person to uh, demonstrate a, a, a certain uh, aspect of Christian morality mm-hmm. in their lives. But what, what we cannot do is we cannot deal with the issue of the heart. So the heart is deceitful. The Bible tells us that all of our good works are like filthy um, menstrual cloths, and that's not meant to be misogynistic, okay? Mm -hmm. But that's the language of the Hebrew Bible. They're like dirty menstrual cloths, something you would discard, something you don't get credit for. Mm -hmm. And again, I had a woman many years ago come to me when I preached that and said, you know, that makes me feel bad as a woman. I said, look, the intention there is not to uh, suggest that menstruation is some dirty, despicable, sinful thing. But, but I think we would all agree that one would not collect their menstrual claws. They would discard mm-hmm. them. It would not be something we would show off. It was something we would hide, something we would discard. And the English Bible is a little more sanitized, but when it talks about filthy rags, it's literally speaking about menstrual claws. Mm-hmm. This is our, not our bad works. This is our good works. Mm-hmm. So you think, well, how is it possible that God could say, you know, if, let's for ex- for example, if I wrote a check for a thousand dollars to a, a charity for blind children, that would be a good deed, right? That would be a good thing. Yes, yeah. it would be a good thing. That would be like the kind of thing a Christian would want to do. Yes, that would be the kind of thing a Christian would want to do. Then, 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 how can you say that I don't have the capacity to do good? Well, because the Bible exposes you to the holiness of God, and when you're exposed to the holiness of God. What you learn about yourself is even the good deeds that we do are deeply polluted, knowingly or unknowingly by sin. So, for example, it's not uncommon to hear of famous philanthropists who have millions of dollars and they donate all kinds of money to have a wing built on a hospital. And what do they expect in return? Their name on the building. Mm. They want their their name on the building. They want an article in the newspaper that says, you know, so-and-so donated $50,000 and a million dollars to such and such a cause. They want uh, some recognition for it. 
and even if they are not so bold as to ask for recognition, maybe it, it helps them to sleep better at night. It helps them to overlook their lustful thoughts, to overlook their covetousness, to overlook their lack of worship, to overlook their blasphemy. It's like, well, you know, I, I just did something pretty amazing. I gave away my children's inheritance to a charity. So the, the Bible does not even award credit for good deeds that we do apart from uh, the regenerative work of God in our lives. So literally, you could live your entire life and be voted the best, most moral person in your neighborhood, and you don't get an ounce of credit mm. when you stand before God. So there, this is important for us to understand. Like sin is not just the bad things we do. It also relates to the, the motives, the, the, the desire for attention, the desire to mitigate the, the consequences of our broader sin. So could, could anyone within the sound of my voice say, yeah, I've never ever had a nasty thought about another person. I've never even thought a sinful thought. I've never said a sinful word. Nobody can say that. And because God is a thrice holy God, even one, even one microscopic sin, and we all commit many more, is enough to eternally separate, or f- separate us from God. So when we ask the question, like, why, why is it that so many people want to retain some belief that they are not totally sinful? Well, I suppose there, there could be someone that's just biblically illiterate, and that would be the, the best case scenario. They're just biblically illiterate. They're, they're reading the Bible. They just haven't seen that in the Bible. They're new to the faith. They assume that in some way, shape, or form, they contributed to their salvation. They went to the right church or read the right Bible verse or walked the aisle and bowed at some altar someplace. I suppose best case scenario, someone could be unaware or ignorant to the deep sinfulness that characterizes all human beings out of ignorance. But I suspect that that's a rare case. I suspect that there's other reasons for it. And the first one that comes to mind is they, frankly, they think too highly of themselves. They, they, instead of allowing the word of God to elucidate, to enlighten their doctrine of homartiology, their doctrine of sin, their understanding of how God works, they have in fact imposed their experience, the interpretation of their experience on their salvation story. So let's suppose a person is, um, raised in a non-Christian home, and they they are disgusted with the evil in the world, and they decide, you know what, I, I don't like this, I don't like what I'm seeing, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to church. And so they start going from church to church to church, and they're, they're hearing biblical sermons preached, and they are listening, they're listening to those English words coming out of the mouth of the preacher, and they're processing it, and they're agreeing with it, they're researching it. And at some point in time, they make a decision. They say, you know what, I, I believe that what I'm hearing is true, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide, I'm going to choose to become a Christian. And so they go to the pastor, a trusted Christian, and they say, what must I do to be saved? And the person says, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, and you will be saved. I'm like, okay, so I, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I renounce my former ways, and I, 
I, I'm trusting in Christ alone for my salvation. And then they, they're baptized as an expression of their faith. They, and then they start to grow in sanctification. And in that process, they're not denying, they're not denying that they've sinned. They're admitting that they're sinned. But then uh, as they uh, progress in their Christian faith, someone says, hey, like, how is it that people are actually saved? And they say, well, this is how it worked for me. So they then say, you know, you need to think about it. You need to listen. You need to trust. You need to believe. And what they're actually doing is they're imposing their human experience, their interpretation of their human experience on their salvation. Let's say it's a legitimate salvation. They're saying this is this is how a person's saved. They they need to choose. They need to believe. They need to renounce. They need to repent. And they're not aware of the fact that, in fact, behind the scenes, God was guiding. God was convicting. God was moving. Mm. At the moment of their salvation, God was regenerating. God was granting the gift of repentance. God was enabling them to believe. They're not aware of that because they haven't studied it out yet, right? So most people find this stuff out after they're saved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're certainly not suggesting you need to know all this stuff to be saved, but yeah. you you find this out after you're saved. But if you don't ever get there, if you don't find this out, if you don't actually study deeply, how was I saved? How do people come to faith in Jesus Christ? Y- you you might think too highly of what you did mm-hmm. and, and that you falsely uh, conclude that you were the one that was in the right place at the right time or did the right thing. And therefore, in a certain sense, Chris, you get the credit for it. You can take a little bit of credit for it because you you know, you know made the right moves. It's almost like a career choice. Well, mm-hmm. I went to school. Mm-hmm. I'm the guy that wrote the test and did the exam. I mean, I know they awarded me the diploma, but I earned it. So when we think too highly of ourselves, it, and and we we if we start with the belief that we have the capacity to somehow overcome our own sin by our own belief our own efforts this hinders us from truly understanding human nature and hinders us from truly understanding god and i would argue perpetually hinder, hinders our worship mm-hmm. when we impose our experience on it so let me let me address like a couple examples of this so one example that comes to mind is um, cornelius the centurion we just preached this a uh, couple months ago in our own church, uh, this passage I'm preaching through Acts. And Cornelius in Acts 10 is just described as a God-fearer. So he he fears God, the passage tells us. He sends an envoy to invite Peter to come and share with him. So I think, well, there, there we have it. There's a guy that looks kind of more or less morally neutral, or he's God-fearing. He's not yet converted, but he's God-fearing. So that proves that humans aren't, totally sinful, that, they, that they, they do have the capacity in and of themselves to seek after God, to fear God. Okay, well, first of all, you got to be a little bit careful <laughs> about uh, using a narrative text to whitewash um, Romans 3, for example, which is pretty didactic. Uh, you have to use, uh, you have to be careful about using a narrative text to whitewash Genesis 3 and to read an interpretation on it. But the the best explanation to uh, the situation we see in Acts 10 is that, of course, around the world, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people who, in that sense, are God-fearing. They, are, they desire in their humanity to live morally. They desire in their humanity to abide by ethical standards. 
That's why there's all sorts of non-Christian philanthropists. The question is, did Cornelius get any true credit for it? Was any of his God-fearing behavior, apart from the regenerative work of God, meritorious? And the answer to that is absolutely not. The Bible's clear, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. People have also said, well, what about Romans 1? It says God's, God has revealed himself to men there without excuse. Yes, we don't deny that either. He's revealed himself in creation through the prophets, through the word of God. He's revealed himself. But that doesn't mean then that you're morally neutral, that you have the capacity to truly seek and reach out to him. Like it, people, it's, like it's not an either or. It's not like, well, if, if God is the one that initiates salvation because I'm totally depraved, then am I like a robot? Now, why are you imposing language like that upon your understanding of Christian theology? Of course, you're not a robot. Of course, God is working in your life. You're processing, you're, you're hearing, you're, the little bones in your ears are fluttering together as gospel words are going in and out of your ears. Your, your mind, the neurons are firing, you're, you're thinking, you're processing. You may be using your two eyeballs to read John 3 or you know Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Of course, you're, you're human, in your humanity, you are engaged in uh, thinking about and processing biblical truth, but you have a terminal sickness that you cannot solve or correct by any amount of effort or merit. You can't think your way out of cancer. You can, it's not like the power of positive thinking. I can think my tumors away. If I just, if I just wish intensely that my tumors were gone. They don't just go away. You can seek after religious things. You can try to pursue morality. You can live your life in a monastery, beating yourself and disciplining yourself. No matter how, much, how many positive thoughts or moral platitudes you utter or how, or how um, much effort you expend, it can never fix the fact that you have inherited a sin nature from Adam, that there's corporate solidarity going on there, that you are in him and he is in you. You are of him. Um, so I would just say, Chris, we like to take a little bit of the credit. And then the, maybe the other reason that comes to mind is um, sometimes people are trying to defend God. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, it makes God kind of look bad if... He doesn't give everyone a fair shake because people automatically start to realize, okay, wait, if I'm totally sinful, if I have no ability to, to pursue God in and of myself, and you're telling me God sought me out, well, that means God must have overlooked some others. So they're trying to defend a fairness doctrine about God, and we're going to hopefully address that. My intention is mm -hmm. to address that, Lord willing, in other podcasts this this false fairness doctrine. We don't. We don't. I don't think a lot of people really understand the the idea that God is impartial. Mm -hmm. um, they 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 impose a human understanding of fairness, impartiality, or impartiality upon God. They're basically uh, instead of studying theology, they're studying anthropology, and they're putting a, an anthropocentric uh, image or focus on God. They're they're. Instead of allowing God to define himself, they're doing it backwards. They're trying to understand God in light of human nature mm -hmm. instead of understanding human nature in light of God's yes. nature. Yep. So if I then 
if I then assume, okay, it's wrong for me to be partial or unfair, well, then that that must be, it must, and, and God is working behind the scenes to bring about my salvation, but he hasn't necessarily worked in everyone's life equally, well, then God must be partial mm-hmm. or unfair. Mm-hmm. And that's imposing a human, a human understanding, a human characteristic upon God. So our theology, Theology informs anthropology. Anthropology, when I'm talking about our doctrine yep. of man, doesn't inform our theology, our theology of God. Right. So from a vantage point of a human being, we can't see what God thinks or knows, but we have to rely on what God has revealed in his word yes. to define that. So some things we must, we must, we, we accept it all by faith, but some of our faith is a highly informed faith. We have answers black and white answers to the questions we ask. Some of our faith is in the mystery of God. So there's certain things about God we, we don't know. The Bible is a long book, but it's extremely short compared to all that we could know about God. Mm-hmm. So we ex- when we talk about faith, faith is receiving God's revelation of himself, but it's also accepting God's mysteries. So we, we, you know, the Bible talks in Romans, um, if the pot, which is representative of the human being, says to the potter, who is representative of God, if the pot says to the potter, why did you make me this way? Like, why did you make me just a little vessel? Why did you make me a dinner platter? Mm-hmm. Why did you make me into a, uh, a, a soup bowl? If the, if the pot says to the potter, why did you make me this way? They're actually violating the roles mm-hmm. that the pot and the potter res- respectively play. So the pot can ask the potter all day long, why did you make me this way? And chances are they're going to be met with silence, not because God is holding out or he's a cosmic killjoy or he doesn't want mm-hmm. you to know something because you know he's intimidated by your knowledge, because you are a creature and you have to get the order right. You are creature, he is creator. And the pot has no right to ask the potter, why did you make me this way? Now, generally, when the pot asks the potter, why did you make me this way? The pot is forgetting that the that the potter made him or her in the first mm-hmm. place and has failed to give thanks to God that you even exist. Because you might not be a pot. You might still be a stinking mess of clay at the bottom of a latrine. But the, the potter has taken you from the pit and he shaped you into a useful vessel. And rather than asking, why did you make me this way? Perhaps it would be better for the pot to ask the potter, how can I be useful to you mm-hmm. in light of the way that you have made me? Mm-hmm. So we don't need to worry about making God look bad. God can defend himself if God says it and we get it, we understand it, we accept it by faith. If, on the other hand, there's something about God that is mysterious, it's a mysterium conundrum, we need to be okay with that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you mentioned um, the idea that we think too highly of ourselves, a thought that came to my mind is maybe a pot conser- comparing itself to another pot. <laughs> and then, of course, you look good when you're slightly better than the next guy and you wouldn't yeah. think, I'm not totally sinful, I'm not totally infected by sin because... Well, I'm, and I think you've said this before too, and perhaps other podcasts, just because we're as bad off as we could be doesn't mean we're as bad as we could be or something to that effect. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I would say that's that's the difference between what we would call the doctrine of total depravity and utter depravity. Right. Where, where we, we are not as bad as we can be, but we're as bad off as we can be. So positionally, we're gonzo, we're mm-hmm. donezo, we're, we are damned. Mm-hmm. And the, the statistics on uh, humans seeking after God are pretty abysmal, zero. In and of themselves, zero seek after God. No one. Read, read, Ro- crack it open. Read Romans three. Mm-hmm. No one seeks after God. No one understands. We're like whitewashed sepulchers. No one. Okay. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is basic Bible. Yeah. Somehow we want to skirt around. Well, what about Cornelius? You know, what about the fact that God revealed Himself in Romans one? What about my experience? Well, how does that make God look? It's all smoke and mirrors. Mm-hmm. It's all an excuse to try to obscure what is clearly articulated to us in the word of God, and that is that human beings are irreparably by their own effort sinful and therefore justly deserving of damnation. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is a starting point in Christian theology and the doctrines of salvation that is fundamental for us to wrap our minds around. Mm-hmm. What would be some takeaways from this doctrine that maybe we could think through living out this week? Mm-hmm. Well, when we we speak of God seeking us out, um, it's important for us not to use silly words to th- then diminish or challenge what we've heard from God's word. For example, some might say, well, Okay, I, if I accept the fact that he sought me out, then that, that means you're telling me I was forced to choose God. And it seems to me, you know, read Acts 17, we're invited to seek after him. We're invited to seek after him. Well, um, it's true. Uh, there is a, a general call that goes out to humanity to, to seek after God. God's revealed himself in creation. He sent prophets, he sent preachers, apostles. He's written 66 books, given them to us. God has revealed, 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 and revealed again. He's proved himself through miracles, through through the resurrection of Christ, through the resurrection of dead people, uh, through protection in war, time and time again. There's no shortage of revelation. You might think, well, yeah, but not in my lifetime. Well, you know what? You're a son or daughter of Adam and Eve as well. Like whether you you were born now or you were born in first century Israel and literally at the foot of the cross. There was a lot of people that were at the foot of the cross and saw what Christ went through and then saw what happened in the resurrection that, that didn't believe. Mm-hmm. So don't, your depravity, it's not a lack of evidence. It's the fact that you are a little Adam or a little Eve that is your big problem. Mm-hmm. And we all are. So there is a general call that God goes out and that God sends out, and he uses his church to do that. So we continue to preach winsomely. We continue to preach broadly. We continue to Mm -hmm. call people to repentance because we know that one of the tools God uses in his redemptive process is the proclamation of the gospel by faithful men and women to other, uh, to sinners, that they would repent and and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not, it's not about being forced. There's no, it's not like a robotic process, but, in the human heart, God is enlivening, awakening 
your spirit. He is making you alive in the salvation process. And he must do that because your sinfulness guarantees you will never by your own efforts get there. You will never by your own efforts get there. So there's you don't have to choose between preaching the gospel or just let go, letting God. Mm-hmm. You can trust that ultimately God is going to work in his own sovereign plan to create whatever vessels for noble use or ignoble use that he sees fit, but that he will he will seek and save the lost in keeping with his redemptive plan. We are responsible for our actions. You might say, well, um, I have an objection. If I've inherited Adam's sin, then how am I responsible? Again, you're too much of an individualist. <laughs> you're, you're informed more by Western notions of human individuality than you are by biblical categories of human individuality. So you're an individual in the sense that you have your own body, soul, spirit. You're, you're, you're a separate spatially, personality-wise, responsibility-wise. You're a separate individual from the from the person standing next to you. You know, you and I are not conjoined twins. We're two separate individuals. And even conjoined twins, while they're physically attached, are two separate individuals. But the thing about it is, is while we have inherited Adam's sin, and therefore we're damned because of it, the amazing thing is every single one of us act upon it. Every single one of us act upon it. Given enough time, we act upon our own sinfulness. Mm-hmm. And again, we could jokingly say the statistics on human sin are rather staggering. Because yep. every, to different degrees, some might be mass murders, some might just wish their neighbor's dead. Mm-hmm. A, a one person might sleep with a thousand people they're not married to. Another person might just have a lustful thought about the neighbor girl. Everyone sins. It's just a matter of degrees. Mm-hmm. Some people have big tumors. Some people have little tumors when they die of cancer. Yep. Some people, when they're dying in hospitals, there's a physical manifestation of their their disease. Maybe it's deformed them or twisted them, or there's mm-hmm. open wounds. Others die, and it's like they don't they don't really even look like anything was wrong with them. But inside, maybe a, a, the aorta blew open, or their spleen ruptured and they bled out. But all of us are sinful by nature and by choice mm-hmm. and by choice, by nature and by choice. So both, both and. So we are responsible uh, for that. And it's like a, a bear. If, if there's a village in northern Ontario that's attacked by a grizzly bear and the grizzly bear comes in and it eats little children, eats the men and eats the women and destroys life, uh, you, you would round up a group of, of uh, you'd, you'd get a posse together mm-hmm. or you'd, you'd call the MNRF and you'd send them out and say, we're going to shoot this bear. Well, you don't have the bear in the sights of your rifle and say, you know what, even though the bear ate all these people, it's a bear. It's programmed to eat flesh and blood. So we're going to give it a pass. Mm-hmm. No, the bear is genetically predisposed to eat people, to eat flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. But it also ate flesh and blood. Yep. And so you shoot the bear dead in justice and to protect life because it's both responsible for its actions 
and its bearishness has also caused it to eat people. Mm -hmm. And so our humanity, our Adam-ishness pushes us towards sin, but we also choose sin. We also march into the village and eat people or whatever it is we're doing, right? Um, so we don't need to think about, we don't need to excuse human behavior because of uh, sinfulness. So let, let's let's flip this equation around. So let's suppose someone says, well, no, human beings are not actually really infected by sin. They're more or less born neutral. Mm-hmm. And then they sin. So what makes them responsible? Well, their sin. Well, it's their sin, someone might say. So you don't need to have a doctrine of total depravity to be responsible because if you sin, you're responsible. Well, then what if someone says, okay, well, what about their uh, their family of origin? What about their lack of education? What about their personality? What about their uh, genetic propensity towards murdering people? And this actually is, is why in a culture that denies total depravity, you have the medicalization of sin, meaning that maybe a better way of putting it is you have all these medical and psychological excuses being given mm-hmm. for sin. So, oh, I'm a homosexual. Well, I have a, I have a gay gene. Or I'm an adulterer. Oh, does that mean you have an adulterer gene? I'm a liar. Oh, do you have a liar gene? Like someone could find those genes anywhere. We would say it's because even if there was a gay gene, if there was a gene that gave me an added propensity towards killing people or stealing things, well, it's because my my entire being is infected by sin. I'm still responsible for mm-hmm. it. But in the same way that opponents of the doctrine I'm articulating try to put the sole responsibility for sin on human choice, what they're actually doing is they're they're opening the door for people to explain away their sin by for example, sociological or mm-hmm. mental deficiencies. So um, there, there's consequences to uh, denying this doctrine. And what you're actually doing is you're giving people an out. You're not, you're not rescuing God from allegations of not being fair. Mm-hmm. And you're not uh, truly um, being successful at taking uh, credit for your own righteousness because in doing so, you're also blaming other people. Or I would say, let me put it this way, you're letting them off the hook for sins they have committed by giving them an excuse for it, mm-hmm. which then reduces their responsibility, which at the end of the day can, can cause them to um, you know, claim innocence. Yeah, they're absolved of responsibility, right? So you, you have yeah. someone that goes and murders someone and they're in court, they're like, well, I'm going to plead insanity, mm-hmm. but you still murdered someone. So yeah. I don't believe in these these verdicts. Oh, I, I'm insane. Okay, you still killed someone, mm-hmm. so you're responsible. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, each of us could come up with 101 excuses. If we're not de- depraved, then we could come up with 101 excuses to explain away our sin mm-hmm. and, and reduce human responsibility down to a grand total of zero. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed in the church, maybe this is not, maybe this is just me picking up on certain language, but several years ago, I started noticing people saying the word broken quite a lot, you know, refer, referring to sinfulness or struggle and or struggle. And both of them remove, well, brokenness removes, I think, personal agency where it's a broken window. The window's broken, but it didn't break itself. Whereas human sinfulness, there is a sense in which we are 
victims of the sins of others, but we are personally responsible and struggle too. Yeah, there it can be used as an excusing excuse away from sin, right? So if we use these words, I don't have a problem with using them in, in what I would call in stacks. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you're preaching to help people to understand a word, you might say, the Bible declares that we're sinners. The Bible declares that we're broken. The Bible declares that we have this unavoidable struggle with sin. Okay, so if you if you were to stack struggle and brokenness on top of sin, then sin helps to yeah. describe or explain the way you're using brokenness and struggle. But if you avoid the biblical language altogether and you use the vernacular of psychology mm -hmm. or use the vernacular of uh, secular counseling, you literally create a world where people are not responsible for their sin. Everyone is a victim or everyone is just living, living out their evolutionary propensity. Well, then you don't really need a savior. Think of it, the logical consequences. You don't need a savior if you don't need to be saved from anything other than your mom and dad. You just need better parents. Mm -hmm. You don't need a savior. You don't need a second Adam if the first Adam sin doesn't affect you. You yeah. just need a better education. Mm -hmm. Or you need to extricate yourself from systemic social evils. See, this is, this is where if we don't guard this doctrine of human depravity, we're actually aiding the enemy mm -hmm. in explaining away human sinfulness as being a product of our environment. And, and then the, when the politicians or the social movers and shakers try to come up with solutions for human sinfulness, it's all anthropocentric. It's all man-centered effort. Mm -hmm. If we can just correct people's behavior, if we can just give them a better diet, if we can just, I don't know, vaccinate them more, if we can just turn on or off this gene, if we can just send them to therapy, we can fix what past generations would have called sin because nothing is really sinful anymore. Right. So this is, the, this is the consequence of bad theology. It has actual consequences. It obscures grace. It obscures the work of the work of God in space and time. Now it's important for people to hear this. Um, I, I, there's a, there's a word that's often used in discussions about human sinfulness, and I'm going to step on some toes here. Okay, so uh, I'm just warning my audience. I'm going to say something. That some of you will applaud and many of you will never have heard before and some of you will be upset by. But we really need to call into question the usage of the language free will. Okay, it's, it comes up in preaching. It comes up in theological discussions. I hear it in the media. It's used in Hollywood. It's a, it's a term free will that basically says human beings can freely choose to believe or reject God or make their decisions in life. And it's, it's an attempt for, among some to mitigate against this notion that humans are somehow robots, that we have like this deterministic God that uh, is sort of manipulating. It's like we're marionettes on strings. Mm -hmm. So I did this exercise with a group of uh, theological students many years ago. I gave them all concordances back before we had digital ones. And I said, okay, we're going to do a, a word study on free will from the Bible. So what I want you to do 
is I want you to um, open your concordance, and, and I want, I'm going to give you a few minutes to find all references to free will in the Bible, and then we'll, we'll come and discuss it. So they're like, okay. So they're starting to thumb through these, and I see some perplexed looks on their faces. And I, I had said to them before, by the way, when we're talking about like free will offerings, okay, uh, in, in the Old Testament, there's free will offerings to the Lord. Uh, obviously, that's the word free and will coming together, but this isn't in relationship to um, an unbeliever. This is in relationship to the believing community choosing to take offerings to the, um, the, the temple or the tabernacle. So it's it's the same two words together. But look, find find the, all those passages in the scripture that talk about the free will of man. And after a few minutes, the one student puts up, I think it was a she puts up her hand and says, Dr. Rock, I can't find any. And I said, you're right. There are none in the Bible. And it was kind of like this little chuckle, right? And I wanted to use that pedagogically as an opportunity to make the point that f- the, the language of free will applied to, to human nature is, is actually from philosophy. It's not from theology. It's been imported so successfully into theology that people often use it to describe their understanding of human choice, that we have a free will. Okay. Free will is a heresy. When we read the Bible, it's actually a heresy. Free will is false teaching. If someone says human beings apart from Christ, have a free will, that's flat-out heresy. Again, read Romans 3. There is no one who does righteous. There is no one who seeks after God. That doesn't sound like free will to me. For as in Adam all sinned. That doesn't sound like free will to me. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. That doesn't sound like free will. That sounds like everybody equally and wholly has the same problem. Well, we're not going to that church. He doesn't teach free will. Then you're you're not submitting yourself to what the Bible teaches because I would dare you to find any place in the word of God that says we have free will. So then what people do is they try to look for illustrations. Well, this person chose, this person chose or didn't chose. They believed or didn't believe. That's a completely separate discussion. Yep. We don't deny human choice. We don't deny human belief. We don't deny people processing information as I articulated earlier. I'm talking about our will that the emotive, the rational desires deep within the human heart, are those actually, do you actually believe those are free, freed from sin? They're not freed from sin. They're in bondage to sin. Your rational processes, your choices, your beliefs, the way you look at life, the way you look at self, others, those aren't free. Those are filled with the cancer of sin. Mm-hmm. But this is where it gets amazing. If you want to use that language to express a concept, when God comes in and does a regenerative work and justifies us based upon the merits of Christ, who did not inherit the sin nature from Adam because he was born of a virgin, by the way. This is why the virgin birth is a, cr- a critical doctrine. Yep. Remember Rob Bell years ago saying it's, he believes in it, but it doesn't really matter. Of course it matters. Without, without a virgin birth, you have a sinful savior. But with a virgin birth, you have a sinless savior. Yep. So when God comes in, he frees, F-R-E-E-S, he frees our wills from bondage to sin and enables us to believe. So if you want to use that language, you could say a Christian has a freed will, F-R-E-E-D. Our will has been freed, so now we have the spiritually empowered, spirit-endowed capacity 
to seek after righteousness as Christians. Mm -hmm. But that capacity is predicated upon God's redemptive work in freeing us from our bondage to sin and seeking us out and in applying the merits of the second Adam, who is Christ, to the sinfulness that we've inherited from the first Adam. If you accept this biblical doctrine, the lights are gonna turn on. And as you begin to then process further, the work of God behind the scenes, human responsibility, the pieces of the puzzle are all going to uh, come into place. It's, it's cohesive, it's comprehensive. It, help, it helps us to make sense out of um, everything in our salvation and everything in life. It, it helps us to understand why, for, for example, by mere political effort alone, we cannot moralize the world. We can simply restrain evil. Mm -hmm. It helps us to understand a biblical view of justice. It helps us to understand a biblical view of God's work before the creation of the world and his plans and purposes in seeking to redeem a world that he knew in advance would fall. It 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 it's um, fuels and motivates our worship. So you can you can just say, well, I don't like this. Okay, well, don't like it then. Your worship will always be stunted. Mm -hmm. Your worship will always be stunted because the the more the more you take credit for your own salvation, the more you excuse your human sinfulness, the more you the more highly you think of yourself, the less able you are to truly worship and thank God for his inexplicable gift, the gift of salvation, which is entirely and completely of God. In terms of answering questions about the human experiences you went through or the fairness doctrine or how God actually did that, we can unpack that in future podcasts. But fundamental to understanding the work of God and salvation is the starting point that God is absolutely holy and we are absolutely sinful. And apart from the work of God, we can do nothing. Now, I want to I want to leave um, uh, my listeners with one final thought, and then you can uh, wrap this up for us. And that is, as as we begin over the coming weeks to unpack a better understanding of human nature and unpack the work of God in our salvation, you need to make sure that you do not allow even a smidgen of arrogance or pride to sneak into your life. These discussions are not meant to split churches. These discussions are not meant to anger. These discussions are meant to correct and to edify the Church of Jesus Christ mm -hmm. so that ultimately God would receive more and more and more glory. The mission of God is the glory of God. And the less we take credit for our own sinfulness, for our own righteousness, and the more we take responsibility for our own sinfulness, and the more we reflect deeply upon God's offer of redemption and freedom in Christ, the, the humbler we become, the more loving we become toward others and toward God, and the more heightened and ecstatic our worship becomes as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, the author, it's in a powerful word, the author and the perfecter of our faith who endured the cross, endured the shame, and laid down his life for us. So I want to encourage people. This is not just an exercise in parsing yep. theological concepts. This is an opportunity, and this is an invitation to increase your worship life so that God might receive more glory through your life. Mm -hmm. This changes the way I hear baptism, conversion stories, 
when you hear a story of different different levels, there can be almost a ranking of stories, and you're like, well, this one's more miraculous than the next one. You're like, no, they're all miraculous because it's a a somebody who is completely sinful, unable to save themselves that God saved. Well, thank you, Aaron, for starting this discussion. It's an interesting podcast. Looking forward to the weeks ahead. I hope our listeners have enjoyed today and that if you have, please make an opportunity to uh, share the podcast, to like it, to rate it, and to uh, make sure for by now, hopefully you're subscribed. If this is your first week, we'll give you a pass for one week, but make sure you subscribe. Come back next week. We want to uh, remind you that you can find this podcast over on the pursuitofglory.org website, as well as the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and their companion app, the Pub TV. Hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.